0: This episode of Great Quarter Guys, we have an action-packed show for you today. Uh, my name is Kevin Hill. I have my co-host over here, Andrew Cox, and our special guest, J.T. Engstrom. And we're going to talk about M&A and private equity and trucking and logistics and kind of what's going on. You know, the market's kind of down, but, you know, what's going on in, in, in M&A, you know, private transactions, public transactions. In, uh, in, in trucking and also freight brokerage. So, and, and special thanks to all the research provided by our friends at Carrier Direct, Peter, Ryan, and Diane, and all the work they do for this show. So we're going to talk about M and A, and then what are we going to talk about? We're going to talk about the drug clearinghouse. Yep, jump we, into we that have bit. We, we have like some dramatic numbers coming out of there.
1: Yeah, a bit surprising. It I, is. Well, I don't. It's not really surprising, but they are. They're large. They're, they so are large. They're larger than than we 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 thought, right? Yeah, I think we'll we'll probably end up modeling that quicker than we thought. I, I think we're so going to do too. Q one, but right, we might right. have to do it uh, after this month. Yeah, definitely. And then we
0: have the uh, DHL supply chain, and then our regular long and short reports. So. Let's get down to it. JT, before we start off, why don't you tell us a little bit, tell our, our listeners a little bit about your background and, <laughs> and what brought you to Freightwaves.
2: Yeah. Uh, thank you for having me on. It's my first time on Great Quarter Guys, which I'm disappointed to admit because I think uh, this is an awesome show. Uh, so thank you for having me. Anytime. I think this is a riveting lineup of discussion topics <laughs> we have here this afternoon. Riveting. 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 Actually, I really mean that, and it would be a lot of fun to talk through this. I'd have to echo, you know, uh, uh, you know, thanks for the contributions of the guys at Carrier Direct. And, um, yeah. Yeah, every every week
0: they do a lot of research for us.
2: You know, what's interesting is those guys, so you know, Pete and Ryan are both really sharp, and so t- directly in related to the conversation we're about to have about M&A, you know, one thing that makes... Uh, the liquidity of buy sell transactions much smoother is when you're selling an operating company, which is relatively well run, and uh, they do a really good job of helping operating companies improve various elements of their businesses, and so they actually you know play a part in this uh, in this process. Um, so
0: they do. They they help uh, both asset and non asset based companies. Prepare to, to get to the to the competency and the efficiencies to then go out and either make an acquisition or be acquired by a, a larger player or
2: a more strategic player. Yeah, or grow healthy revenue, expand margins, uh, diversify lines of business, think about doing things more efficiently, leveraging cross-sells between the asset side of the house and the asset light side of the house. Um expanding gross margin percentage, and also think about more deeply penetrating customer bases. And all of these subjects are relevant to M&A. It is, yes. And you have a little bit of background in M&A, is that right? Yeah. So my background, um, so I spent three years as a management consultant at Oliver Wyman and their transportation group. That was right on the back of the Great Recession. Uh, so I, we did a lot of uh, operational turnaround work and... Um, uh, we were also uh, hired by a lot of private equity firms to do, like, leverage buyout support to tack on a portfolio operating companies. And then I was an uh, equity analyst for, call it, five years in transportation, covering trucking, brokerage, 3PL, bunch of other stuff mm-hmm. that we talk less about, including railroads. And then I was in investment banking doing uh, both MA and some public equity, a little bit of debt, but mostly m in the trucking and brokerage space. And so this is something I've lived uh, from a lot of different angles. Uh, so it's, it's, it is a subject that I really enjoy. And what do you, you're an engineer by trade? Yes. Yeah, so by, st- by education, not by trade. Yeah, it's that's crazy. a great question. So I actually started off as an industrial engineer and operations researcher, and I got into trucking or got interested in trucking and transportation because I really liked routing. I thought it was a cool mm-hmm. kind of thought process to try to figure out. Oh, yeah. Um, not a lot of people know that. but, yeah, so, so, but so,
0: routing and, and lanes and, and efficiencies and that. Right, which parlays well into thinking about trucking
2: companies and railroads and things of the sort. And, it does. And, That's news to me. It, it does. Is. Yeah, a lot of people don't know that. Um, so, I've got a little bit of a nerd in my background. <laughs> got <it. Yeah>. So <laughs> More than a little. M- <laughs> M-A, M&A is an interesting subject. And so, when we talk about M&A and we break it down sector by sector... Um, you know, you, what you're always trying to do is craft the combination of a buyer universe and a seller universe. And typically all these universes are, are uh, imbalanced. Mm-hmm. And so when we talk about trucking versus broke or you know, asset heavy versus asset light is maybe the best way to, to start off by segmenting it. Um, in the asset heavy world, you have a relatively highly constrained buyer universe. You know, specifically in the trucking space, there's a list of maybe 50 um typical acquirers Um, and if you do MA in the space you know all of them they all know each other Um, there's a group of probably 10 or less law firms that operate in that universe as well same with the accountants so like it's a it's a small fishbowl
0: it is for like like a 800 billion dollar a year industry or Uh maybe if you say $400 billion a year on the commercial side, yep.
2: everyone seems to know everybody. Yeah, it's, it becomes really, it becomes, it, the, the pyramid gets narrow at the top. Very narrow. And so what happens when you do deals is you have to assume that everyone sort of knows everything about the deal, despite the fact that you might not have revealed any information. They may have already done due diligence on the company. They might already know the entire customer base. They'll likely have talked to the customer base to... To, to get insights into what the company does or doesn't do well. Um, they'll probably already know the lenders that uh, have the current credit facility on the asset prior to the transaction. And so they might have a different view on the financials than can be seen in the SIM, um, which stands for the uh, Confidential Information Memorandum, which is more of a storytelling book than investment bankers are, will put out. Mm-hmm. So you might have an investment banker put out a book that says that, you know, Revenues are up 10% year over year and margins are expanding and this, that, and the other. And, you know, you might also go talk to the creditors and have them be like, yeah, well, last year operating income was down 25%. They tripped one of four covenants. <laughs> you know, they lost big <laughs> <their> biggest client. <laughs> so, so they
0: exaggerate a little bit. Uh, you know, it's all about storytelling. Bit. I mean, you're yeah.
2: selling. Being an investment banker is like being a sales guy. It really is. Uh, it's yeah. a complicated sales role
3: is, is, is,
2: is kind of one way to think about it. So, so why is what? would a, a large trucking company,
0: one of those fifty, what, what's one of the primary reasons why they're in acquisition mode? Yeah, I mean, what are, are some of the, the 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 three type of buying decisions whenever they they say yes, we're looking for acquisitions is it you know non organic growth is I mean what what exactly. Coming, comes into play.
2: Yeah. No, it's a great question. And what, what happens is when you get really deep in this space, you'll find that you know if there is 50 of each of the 50, you have to know them all really well to figure out when all of them are firing on what cylinders. Mm-hmm. And then you seek to time the market such that they're all firing on all cylinders so you can drive valuation. So is there a common theme? There There are, and I'll or, jump or, into those. Yeah. But But I think just to set the landscape, okay. I think that's kind of an important background because they all have different capital and ownership structures they all have different levers of leverage they all have different philosophies and theses uh but if i were to boil down um to 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 goals post acquisition for why they all get involved um i would i would have kind of like the high mountaintops being uh one acquisition of a new competency and so, so, like a new mode, new region, new geography. Yeah. So, like, you know, Heartland acquired Interstate, um, for example, because he want, because Mike wanted to get on the West Coast, and then he doubled down a year after because he wanted to have density on the West Coast. Okay. So it's a good example where you know they had overlapping customers, they had relatively same equipment type. You know, it was a, it was a different it was acquisition of lanes effectively, and then it gave them some pricing power when they did the second acquisition. So it's a good specific example of how you can build out land density and you can gain, I don't want to use the term pricing leverage, but. You, you have know,
0: a denser network, so you have some kind of pricing power that's
2: above where you started out. Or at least operating synergies to fill backhaul. Sure. And yep. perhaps consolidate some terminals, mm-hmm. right? And maybe get some purchasing synergies with equipment. Mm-hmm. and maybe also have shared parking space and shared back office resources, such as driver recruiting in Washington state. Yeah. You know, so at a tactical mm-hmm. level and these, and these truckers, again, these top 50 are guys who have done this their whole lives. So you talk to Mike Jardine, literally in this Heartland example, I mean, his first job was washing truck tires when he was like three years old for his dad. <laughs> but, like He's <laughs> been thinking about this for 60 years. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Um, I mean, he knows it well, Uh, and all these guys do. Um, So, you know, another good example is uh, uh, if it's a direct uh, overlay, overlining operating company, it could be an acquisition of a net new customer contract. Um, And and many times, if you're looking to penetrate a large customer, sometimes it's easier to purchase a contract than to go through a bid process and to try to Mm -hmm. lose money the first year or two and figure out how to price it. Yeah. Because uh, most of these contracts are all different, and so figuring yeah. out pricing is tough. It is very
0: tough. Yes, definitely. As someone who's tried to figure out pricing for trucking, it is all over the place yeah. and and hard to to, to figure out. And each it's really not an intelligence different.
3: thing. Yeah, no. it's really
2: not. Yeah, because it's like, you know, what you don't know when you're pricing a contract for the first time. It's like okay, like so, what's actually detention, and like what is traffic really like on this lane if I've never been on it, and What's the time of day? What's the actual receivership look like? How well do they like load on load? I mean, there's all these other things you just you don't know yeah. the answers to. Exactly.
0: Now, how about acquisitions or, or the possibility of acquisitions to capture another trailer mode? So, if you're you're a, a dry van carrier, do yeah. you want to acquire you know a specialized, more specialized, maybe in reefer or flatbed? Yep. Uh is is that another of the, the top reasons to
2: to be acquisitive as so, a trucking company. Philosophically it makes sense if and this is a big if. Um and this is JT's personal opinion here. If there is an adjacency within your current customer portfolio that would demand both services such that you could cross-sell it. And so let me expand on what that means. If you um if you if you're a driving a truckload carrier and you have a relationship with a big box retailer and you think that by purchasing a refrigerated carrier you can cross sell that relationship mm-hmm. to both equipment types that makes a ton of sense. And, and one of those would be you know a perfect example that is very tangible is Walmart
3: getting yep. more into groceries. Yep.
0: Or Target getting more into to, to groceries, so Great you have example. a, a dry, dry bulk dry yep. goods company mm-hmm. that's starting to open up and expand rapidly yep. into fresh and frozen
2: foods. Perfect opportunity to do across the strategically logical makes a ton of sense. Now, conversely, if you have that same Walmart contract and you're a dry van carrier, it doesn't make a lot of sense for you to go out and purchase a specialized flatbed carrier because you want to diversify. And you 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 know you can see historically operators had made this mistake under the guise of, well, we want to diversify, we want to have counterbalanced revenue streams, and then they find out, well, the equipment's different, the customer contracts are totally different, my operating management teams need to be fundamentally different because they're definitely different businesses, and all of a sudden I'm not getting any synergies and I'm running two different brands, two different types of companies, and this is not... I'm not getting leverage on it. And you can see that with, uh, if you study the
0: conglomerates at all, especially from the 70s or 80s or even now, you know, going out and diversifying your portfolio doesn't really, you can burn a lot of money doing that.
2: Yeah, you can. It's its, it's not
0: easy to do to get into another industry or 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 even in the same industry, the difference between van, van customers and flatbed customers are dramatic. Yeah. You know, uh, it's a dramatic difference, but between the two, and we see it now with e-commerce, right? The final mile network is completely different from the full truckload, or, or even the LTL model. Oh
1: yeah, we we've spoken about this about the different um, the different service that LTL and last mile are like. With, with an LTL, you're just there. You got have you got a half a truckload. You go and drop it off. You're off. It's just about getting it from point A to point B. But then with your final mile delivery, you have this kind of white white glove service where you need to have people that have skills that can hook up a washer and dryer that can, you know, put up some cabinets that they had to. You know, it's just, just a different set of skills that people don't really think about uh, yeah. unless you're under the And surface. I think you saw
0: that with the uh, Schneider acquisition of the final mile and then shutting that down, is that the <clears throat> full truckload and, and final mile are two different, different beasts. They're, they're different beasts. Wouldn't you agree, JT?
2: Yeah, and I think, uh, uh, you know, on top of that, talking about different beasts, you know, Andrew just uh, dropped a 3 little word, which was uh, LTL. And that's a totally different beast than truckload. Yes. Um, In the past, a few times, people have tried to merge truckload and LTL carriers for something other than just assetizing line haul. And -hmm. that's created challenges more so than our previous example. But LTL businesses, if you're to talk about M&A and LTL now, that's a very different conversation. Yes. You have a smaller pool of carriers on the top, right? Different industry dynamics, Mm -hmm. different industry economics— and now you can still do deals with those two criteria. But the third criteria is probably the most important is um, combining overlapping networks doesn't really give you operating leverage. No, it does not. It, does, it doesn't It no, does give you no, a lot no. of operating leverage now, f- which you could conceptually attempt is adjacent networks to gain, you know, head-haul, back-haul. The challenge we've seen is that combining adjacent LTL networks is incredibly challenging. And... Luckily, since deregulation, especially over the last 15 years, LTL models have been pretty price-disciplined, and it's mm-hmm. resulted in them being able to drive a lot of cash flow, and they haven't need to buy people because they've been able to organically grow at a multiple of the truckload space. Yeah, I think
0: one of the, 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 the really good examples in the last few years of the, the difference between LTL and, and full truckload is, uh, an, or not Amazon, uh, XPO's acquisition of Conway. Where they took the LTL side and completely sold off the, the full truckload side. CFI, of yeah. CFI to to pay down debt, but there's no reason to have LTL and, and full truckload. Um,
2: no, so, and I mean... Especially for for XPO. No, and, and, and if you talk to the management team at XPO, they'll tell you that running a full truckload carrier and asset-based truckload carrier is tough. Um, and they were able to diversify away. I think what what was what became clear post acquisition of Conway is that that truckload operation was a crutch for the LTL when it was under the brand of Conway, and effectively, uh, you know, the truckload division had always been criticized for running very poorly. But the reason is because it was the cost center for the LTL division, and they were hiding a lot of operational inefficiencies with Conway's LTL network, which Brad exposed and then fixed, and so. That's why that deal worked for Brad is because he had a lot of operational improvement opportunities mm-hmm. and he got rid of the crutches and, you know, backfilled it with third-party relationships with expedited carriers to do team line haul, which, oh, by the way, happens to be, like, one of the most difficult kinds of trucking because you've got two or three guys in a cab. They're running on a stop. They're sleeping mm-hmm. while, you know, doing 70 miles an hour. It's it's a disaster. Yeah. L- Turnover is 200-plus percent. It's yeah, like, no, it's, it's, it's tough. I mean, you know, I, I can imagine— you know,
0: driving for, for 10, 11 hours and then getting a pack of a truck for the next 10 or 11. Yeah. You know, I mean, that, that's, that's the really, job. Yeah, That is the job. That is the job. And you don't know
2: the guy driving. I know, right? So, you know, it's yeah, like, yeah. hopefully, you know. He's might not have gonna... met him the day before. Yeah, literally. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's Team Lionel, uh, or Expedited. Um
0: so, so what did we find out on the M&A volumes and sizes of deals in in trucking over the – what time frame did you look back? Uh, I look Antrop- back
1: to 2000, um, and it really looks that the the activity didn't really pick up until uh, early this decade. So we're looking like 2013, 2014, and, and then it just pops off 2015 for $100 billion. Uh, mm-hmm. I, and I've got ai can dive deeper into that. It's, I'm sure there's probably one really big deal in there that, that inflates it a little bit. Um, but, yeah, it's just the, – the amount of – Capital invested has steadily grown uh, on a on a double digit basis for the last ten years or so, yes. um, peaking in 2015. For sure. Yeah. So what, what was
0: when, when was Night Swift? That was 2017. Yeah, that Or 2018.
2: Right. Uh, 17. Yeah, about that time period. I think 17. Yeah, late late. Give or take.
0: You know, mid mid to late 2017. because it, it was right before the ELDS. Yeah. Uh,
2: in, in in late
0: 2017.
2: Yep. Yeah. Um. So, I mean, a couple of things come to mind when I look at this chart. We, we didn't talk about the asset light space, which is pertinent to this chart. Oh, we will get there in, in a second. And there is, okay. Unless you want to go there right now. Well, the only reason why I bring it up now is because as we look at this chart, basically what the chart would tell you is that deal flow is increasing, closed deals are increasing, the total capital invested is increasing. And part of that's because of the heightened level of prevalence prevalence in private equity and transportation, specifically in the asset light space. Yes. Which parlays well into our next subject, but nonetheless I think it's an important one to call out as we as you kind of look at the breakdown of this. So, trend. so
0: yeah, so so private equity is consolidating that that the asset light space, which is freight brokerage. Let's just uh, call it
2: freight brokerage. Some three P some four PL
0: but some four PL but to me they're all freight brokerage. You know, another day, three PL, four PL, five PL. Uh, you know, I'll just I'll just call them freight brokerages because yeah. then you know there, there's don't don't a tell dozen a lot firms. of PE
2: owners that oh, I know. So no, we're, okay. we're 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 big. You know, third party logistics operating companies with a big tech enabled TMS platform. We just happen to broker some loads. Yeah, you know, we just happen to broker. You know, <laughs> just act like a freight. It's broker. interesting. It's like seventy five percent of your operating income. Yeah, I
1: know, right. <laughs> <laughs> I know.
3: But, go no, through. I was just gonna ask.
1: So you know, JT, why do you think why you coming from this background? Why has private equity flooded into uh, asset light in the last five years?
2: Yeah. Uh, so so private equity's flooded into the private uh, the asset light transportation space because of a handful of reasons. One, you have positive industry secular dynamics, i.e., the transportation space continues to grow. The economy is kind of dependent on it.
0: It's about eight percent growth in in freight broker. You know. Brokered loads are growing 8% year over year for the last decade. Yeah. Or more, which is, you know, uh, sometimes four times GDP. So, so you've got, you got a growing subsector
1: and a growing industry and a growing economy. I growing think. demand yep. for the overall, mm-hmm. right. you know,
2: need for the space. Two, uh, there's, there's you know, the low level of capital intensity uh, reduces the risks associated with investment decisions right. during the holding period. Uh, two, the low level of capital intensity... And, allows big leverage buyouts, which can mm-hmm. enable these private equity firms to multiply their returns by using leverage, financial leverage. Uh, and, and three, the space is incredibly fragmented. So you can grow organically um, at a multiple of GDP. You can grow inorganically um, at a multiple of inorganic growth. You can combine both of those, and then you can fuel it with a bunch of debt yeah and you could do it over a couple of year period you can find yourself with you know five x returns you know consider that a you know double in the ballpark yeah i mean it's it's a very fragmented market mm-hmm. uh,
0: you know the top one hundred have they, they do actually have a sizable portion uh, of the the freight breaker breakers market which is anywhere from sixty to to eighty billion dollars depending on on who you're talking to yeah. right but it's a large market that's that's growing very fast um you know, there's not a lot of capital involved, right? So, you know, it sheds off a lot of cash, and and basically, a lot of those owners, you know, there's a there's a big fragment between, say, a twenty million dollar brokerage and a hundred million. Yeah, there's a lot of players out there, and a lot of those players are getting up to retirement age. Yeah. So,
2: and, and then basically... Looking for a cash out. Yeah. And the if, other thing is, like, to take a $20 million broker to a $100 million broker... It's difficult. It's difficult, but it's also very different than trying to take a $100 million, three or four PL, and turn it into a $500 million, three or yes. four PL. Mm-hmm. So, it's the same 5X revenue growth, but totally different playbook. Completely different. Totally different yeah, playbook. Completely different. D- different, uh, different set
0: of skills. I mean, basically uh you can have a great entrepreneur who runs it up to 20 30 yep. 40 million dollars yep. but to, to get to 100 million it takes a completely
2: different uh, you need to playbook. systematize you need to, yeah. to standardize and then there's sales. something that our, our
0: friends over at carry direct they do really well. they, they specialize yeah, they, in, they in, in helping entrepreneurs running a 30 40 million dollar book of business get to that 100 million because you have to put in sales process you got to scale mm-hmm. you got to hire Sales people, yeah, right. Additional salespeople, and you might, and you might be, a, and they're they're usually naturally born salespeople. Yeah, oh, yeah, right. Yeah. They have the charisma and sure. and everything to build it up to thirty million. But then you have to get other people on the phone. Yep, and you might not be the best sales trainer. You might need out a real there. technology system. Uh, exactly. So technology. Not even a
2: real one. Just you know something other than Excel. Figure out
0: how to compensate everybody. Right. You know technology. And now so, you need freight matching. Totally. It's, it's, I mean, you've lived it. Yeah. yeah. It, it, but, so but if I, you're 50 years old, you know, do I really want to, to take all that investment yeah. and go up? Or do I want this PE company that's doing a consolidation of the industry to come in and offer me, if I'm doing $30 million, maybe $10 million for my brokerage? Yeah. And uh, I go open up a NetJet account, and I relax
2: for a couple of years. Yeah. Well, I mean, you I, know, you know I, I bring that up for <laughs> two reasons. One, you, you know, I, I've the first thing I mentioned here was the supply and demand dynamic of properties. You know, one— uh, I, I bring up the thesis because a private equity firm would view each of those tiers dynamically differently. If you told the PE firm to get a five x return, you had to help a company standardize sales. You might say, okay. <laughs> but then conversely, you know, as a, as a past banker, knowing that you can go up to the, you know, you just mentioned a fifty year old, you know, founder led entrepreneur. Mm-hmm. A lot of these guys have never thought about selling their companies. But they haven't. No. So you show up and you're an investment banker, and you say, "Hey, by the way, you can keep working 75 hours a week, and you can try to bring this thing to the next tier, or you can work with me for you know maybe three to six months, and <laughs> I can probably get you a check for like 10 million bucks." Yeah. And
1: they're like, "What? Really? Yeah." And they're like, "Yeah." Yeah. yeah. I, 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 <laughs> and they're yeah. Like, yeah. what would you do, Andrew? Uh, depending on age, if I was any, any day older than I am right now, I'd take the 10 million and run. So (laughs) yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Taking the 10 million.
2: Um, so, you know, that's how you can unlock a lot of deals in transportation is by talking to family owned businesses who had never been traditionally institutionally targeted. And uh, that's a
0: unique thing with both the asset heavy and asset light is that the predominant, the vast majority are family owned businesses. Yep. Right.
3: Yep.
2: And so, okay, so now you unlock the deals, right, at whatever yeah. tier. So now you've got to identify your buyer universe. And so, you know, going to find a private equity firm that'll, you know, if if, if, it's, if it's, you know, call it $50 million in revenue, you're talking, let's just say $5 million in EBITDA. You know, so if it's an asset-like property, if you just assume it's going to sell for seven and a half, eight times, and you're talking to $40 million enterprise value, you need someone to be able to write. You know, call it a ten to twenty million dollar equity check mm-hmm. um, so you're talking ten to twenty million on the low end, maybe th- three times that in terms of equity check size on the high end for this tier, and so you're looking for a firm that's going to write a fifty million dollar check kind of midpoint of which there's hundreds of private equity firms that would entertain you know uh, you know an opportunity of that sort. And, and so, we're talking about asset, on the asset light side. On the asset light yeah. side, right? And so when you're when you're selling an untouched asset to a buyer's universe that can provide a high level of leverage and you can return a lot of growth and cash flow, um, you can drive valuation pretty materially. And conversely, they're able to provide that valuation because they can see tactically how you would grow the asset. Mm-hmm. Now, when you get to the next tier or next level of scale, let's say instead of being $50 million in revenue... You know, now you're 500 million in revenue and your asset light. Okay, well, if you're doing, and again, I'm using totally round numbers here. You know, 50 million of EBITDA, you know, <clears throat> and you've got, you know, a 10 times multiple. That's a you know 500 million dollar enterprise value business. If you put three times leverage on it, you know, you need a 350 million dollar equity check, right? And those guys, in order to justify their IRR, need to be able to go to their investment committee to say, we can get a 5X return in five years or less, even if it only turns out to be three or four, mm-hmm. right? And so they've got to be convinced that you can penetrate your way into the market to being a $2.5 billion company, which is a very it's, different- So there's a very difficult- Strategic thought process than saying, well, how do I grow a brokerage from $25 million in revenue to $100 million in revenue? It's hugely different. It's right? kind of right? like because... go from just serving Dalton, Georgia, to serving all of Georgia. Yeah, yeah, exactly, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Which, you know, so you, you then enter this strategic discussion of like, okay, how do you become a multi-billion dollar asset like logistics company? And this is where kind of you know the private equity plays start getting really interesting. Um, and, a, and a handful of operating companies have done this really well. And they've systematized this model. And, you know, the, the names are pretty well known.
0: And we've seen some of those deals over the last few months. So, so we saw mode transport, yep. like mode transportation mm-hmm. uh, combined with SunTech. Yep. And we've seen, uh, you know, Transportation Insights yep. and Nolan mm-hmm. uh, doing a lot of, or they combined, number one. And then that, that private equity firm that's behind them are doing a lot of bolt-on acquisitions right now. So let's expand on just
2: these two, because you bring up a really good point. And, and you know, I think you deliberately went right at the heart of this, which is... Of course. <laughs> you <laughs> mentioned two private equity-owned operating companies who each did two deals or, you know, each did one deal mm-hmm. respectively. And so this exactly hits on my point. If, if Griffin owns TI and if York owns Mode and let's say they're into it for enterprise value of $750 million each, they're not both exactly the same size, but just for illustrative purposes. They're if, close, though. If they want to get to $3 billion each, it's tough to do that organically. Very tough to do it organically. Yeah. Almost impossible. It's really tough. So if you can go out and bolt on another seven hundred fifty million in enterprise value for each of these, mm-hmm. um, now you've doubled overnight in terms of enterprise value size. Obviously it's cost you some money. Um, and so instead of and so now now your organic question is not to quadruple, it's to increase by maybe fifty percent to to find your, your exit. Mm-hmm. And so the question becomes, well, what properties can you most strategically acquire to help you accelerate your organic growth? So you not only gain scale, but you accelerate or organic growth.
0: So if you take this one step further, you know, you're know you not going to be shopping around $30 million brokerages. It doesn't or move you, the needle. It doesn't move the needle unless you buy 10 of them. It might
2: be dilutive because you know, you've got yeah. Jim Damon over at Mode spending two days a week looking at a business that doesn't move the needle. Exactly right. So, <laughs> so you have to look at… Which he uh, doesn't do, by the way. Uh, yeah. So, so, so
0: you have to look at, at, at freight brokerages or, or 3PLs or 4PLs or whatever we want to call them uh, that are well they are doing two, at least 200 million yeah. probably closer to 500 million yeah and so, there's not many of those out there
2: no it's so a now very very small handful now you've got to be strategic right because it's no longer this position where yeah there's 500 opportunities and i just need one yeah it's more like okay there's five opportunities and there's all of a sudden 200 buyers yes so the tables have turned on the mm-hmm. supply and demand dynamics really quickly from very quickly yes. another so, okay, so, so like, why did Mode merge with Suntech and why did TI merge with Nolan? Are they just because they had great brands? Actually, there was pretty material strategic implications move, for move both the needle, of them. They've right? got to move, move the needle in terms of TEV, but then also in terms of organic acceleration. And so, both of these, you mentioned two really unique combinations. So, like, TI and Nolan make a ton of sense because Nolan had a traditional company store brokerage model matched with TI having a big transportation management platform, and they were able to cross-sell their books of business because they had non-overlapping lines of business. So TI was able to take that whole managed trans book and put it through the brokerage of Nolan and capture all that net income, or net revenue, rather. Conversely, you know, Mode and SunTech, they, they were sort of the two biggest agent-based networks in the country, and it was really challenging for them to think about who else to merge with, and so they're... they're they're sort of the uh, prince and princess of the dance, if you will. Maybe not king and queen, but prince and princess, yeah, for sure. Yeah, I
0: mean, it's
2: tougher to, to take an agent-based model and merge it with a, a W-2 it's broker tough. model. It's tough. And, and the reason is because your brokers can call on anybody they want. Yes. But I could be the agent at Mode who owns, like, the Pepsi account. Mm-hmm. And if all of a sudden... Uh, and so I own that P&L, so it's my revenue, and so I feel like I can walk away, which may or may not be true, but they at least feel this way because they're independent business owners. And in, 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 in a lot of cases, they can yeah. because they own that relationship. So if we purchase a brokerage and those guys start calling on my account, man, I'm, I'm unhappy.
0: Oh, yeah. You're going to uh, to be looking at other agents Yep, or a- other agencies out there mm-hmm. to to go jump ship, and, and that, that
2: happens constantly. Yeah, that's right. So now, so now, where where is the organic acceleration? Well, Mode was really well known for their intermodal offering, their IMC, uh, and Suntech TTS was great and dry and flat. Now, Mode also had a flat, uh, dry offering, so it's not to say they didn't, but it's great to rebalance out this mm-hmm. portfolio. And if if you if you if you note know, Mode, back back. You know, originated as an operating company for, or most recently was an operating company for Hub Group, uh, and so the IMC model was incubated there to, to a material level of scale, and that's why you know roughly sixty five percent of their revenues came from IMC. So, so we've talked about
0: why, you know, private equity makes sense for the asset light players, yeah, right? You want to go you full know? circle. Yeah, let, let's 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 take uh, the Tiger by the tail. Yeah, why is private
2: equity not so great with asset heavy? I think it's I think it's 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 a much easier question to answer now, having gone through that. With the same private equity philosophical mindset, how do I look at a truckload carrier that you know can go through these tiers? How do I get them through these tiers? And oh, by the way, private equity firms—they all think in terms of equity check size, in terms of in and
3: out—and
2: mm-hmm. so the same private equity firm that was targeting an equity check of 50 million um for an asset light business which might imply ebitda of 678 something like that well if a truckload business is trading at four times i've got to find a truckload carrier that's making 12 million of ebitda instead of finding a brokerage that's making five mm-hmm. right and so yes you see where we're going here yeah i know right it's it's how long's that list not long whatsoever not long, and so as we go through this 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 tier, okay. So let's keep going. All right. So let's say I, I find my twelve million dollar, um, EBITDA truckload carrier. <clears throat> I lever it two times because I want to be conservative, right? Mm-hmm. And so, and so I go fifty fifty debt and equity. Um, I write up, you know, call it fifty million dollar enterprise value. Check, you know. $25 million equity, and now I want to double my return. I won't even talk about 5Xing. Let's just say I want to double my return okay. in five years. You've got to do a bunch of M&A. You can't do that organically. Okay, So let's say you find the target. You, okay. require, you acquire a like-for-like like scale. Now you've got post-merger integration questions. Does the network overlap? Can you cross-sell the business? Do you have to call the brokerage revenue? Does the equipment types make sense? The dispatchers work together,
0: and and there's uh, there's another question too, right? And and it, it applies to asset light as well, uh, but a lot of these are family businesses, and it's harder to do due diligence on family run businesses because everyone has an incentive to keep the bodies that are buried buried. Oh, and they do it pretty well, don't they? And
2: truckers got personalities, man. Yeah. Um. <laughs> So I I merged two carriers about a year and a half ago. One that was about you know same ballpark, um, and another that was a little bit larger. And man, these guys went at each other real hard. They're like, <laughs> you know, the buyer was you know was sort of like, how do I know you say you have 250 trailers? How do you how do I know you have 250 trailers? And he's like, well, it's on our asset list. It's right on my balance sheet. And He goes, well, I want to see them all. <laughs> and you're like, think yeah. about that for a minute. They're all rolling all day. Yeah all over the northeast you know what i mean so like saying i want to see them all like doesn't make any sense you can't actually go count them so like if there's no uh like inherent respect or or, you know there was a lot of respect but um like faith and word that's because they're all type a's but so this brings me to my next point so let's say you do the merger there's no cyclicality in the space so you keep growing organically that's a that's a big if that's a huge if (laughs) and let's come back to that. But I and I yeah. know that you guys talk about cyclicality a lot, which is why I'm not touching on it, but obviously it's a very cyclical market. Yep. But let's say you you get to this you've doubled in size successfully. Um in order to make your money, you still have to sell. Mhm. <laughs> who do you who, who are you going to sell to? Okay, now you're in my world, right? <laughs> yeah. So now you're talking to this fishbowl of 50 people. Mhm. Okay. <laughs> and so If you had to sell a company for $125 million right now, we won't name any names, but let's just think about that list of 50. Think about Mm -hmm. how many are public, how many are private, how many are owned by private equity. Mm -hmm. Okay, Go look at the news. The market's down 8% in the last two days. Yeah, So the public operating companies are going to be really challenged to write an equity check with stock right now. So they might be off the list already, just like that. Oh, I think, yeah, I think that's a safe assumption. Just like, they're off the list. Yeah. And that's happened to me before where you're in the middle of negotiating a deal with a public company and all of a sudden the public equity markets fall apart and you can't get an equity check.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: So 50s become, you know, really the 50s like 30. 30, right? yeah. Right. And yeah. so the th- your 30s become, you know, call it 20, super round numbers here. Right. Yeah. So now you're dependent upon private equity backed operating companies of which. There's none buying companies at $125 million EBITDA right now. Mm-hmm. Okay. So take that out. So you're basically left with a group of 20 that are all family-owned businesses. And so how do you get a $130 million check from someone's family office?
0: I, mean, I don't know question. if you just said this, but out of those 20, there's probably 10 that do not do deals. They don't. They do not acquire. Nope. They've never acquired anybody. They never will. Mm-hmm. And so they're off the table. Yep. So you're you're really essentially down to less than 10
2: really. Yeah. So so th- this is and this is where the so saga of trucking gets really interesting. Yeah. There's the kind of like the hidden elements of of getting large deals done is you know you're not doing traditional deals in you know New York City. You're, you're going around the country to some unique trucking towns looking for hundred million dollar checks, which is <laughs> such an asinine statement to make.
0: Like middle of nowhere, Iowa or middle of nowhere, Nebraska, or, yep. you it, know, middle of nowhere, Oklahoma, Dallas, somewhere. maybe Dallas, you sometimes
2: know? New Mexico every once in a while in Wyoming, maybe in Pennsylvania or Baltimore. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I'm just making up city <laughs> names. I've never done this before. Um, Um, and, and so, you know, when you talk about the willingness of those institutions, if you want to call them institutions, it's, it's almost completely independent of the state of equity markets, the state of wall street, almost even the state of truckload. Um, it's more so like what's going on with each office's sort of family dynamics that week, that month, that quarter. Yes. Which, you know. So there's no exit. There can be, but you've got to be deliberate, and you have to understand that the whole notion of multiple appreciation throughout these tiers.
0: Well, there's no good exit. No no good
2: exit strategy that, there's a that glass you really ceiling.
0: want to— There is a glass seal. There's so many other industries with great exit strategies. Why would you
2: be a private equity company or That's firm— buying asset base, and that's why there's so many family-owned trucking companies i believe so, so, like some of the large that's why there's that's why some of the largest trucking companies are still family-owned because you know the ones that have gotten that bigger usually actually run pretty well and make pretty good money and reasonable mm-hmm. return on assets but if you don't have an appropriate exit then their idea is well you know what i'll just hold it and I'll harvest the cash flow, mm-hmm. and I'll reinvest it in other stuff,
0: and I'll diversify my portfolio. So, so last question on trucking because we have to move on, but what's the best way to reinvest your, your profits in trucking?
2: <laughs> <laughs> this is a subjective personal question, but I know the answer you're looking for is well, real estate. Real estate.
0: <laughs> real estate, and, and I, I think it's very quantifiable. I think I'm going to do a survey, actually. If yeah. I can get to the C-level. Uh, or you of can invest trucking, in venture
2: tech companies.
0: It's true, true. But but every every trucking company owner from five trucks to five thousand trucks I know has all their money tied up in real
2: estate. Yeah, yeah, and it works out pretty well for them. It does. But it's interesting how someone goes from one illiquid investment to another.
0: True, true. But, but the real estate market's much more stable. There's yeah, not the cyclicalities of it. You know, you don't go two or three years not making any money. Yeah. And, 9 months of just
2: raking in the cash. And perhaps that's part of it is the 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 hunt for stability. Yes. In a world where day by day you're dealing with a yeah. lot of volatility. And it's nice and
0: tangible. Yeah. You know, you're running a truck company because you
2: have nice tangible assets.
0: Yep. You know, real estate is very nice. You can go out and walk across it, you know, yep. you can mow the
2: grass. Okay, let's keep going down this list. What's number 2? Uh number 2 Number two type of business I see owned in these family portfolios are insurance companies.
0: Oh yeah, yeah. So That's it's a very
2: good one too. And it's also obviously also tangentially related to trucking because the real estate with mm-hmm. the park of trucks, they're great. The insurance, well, if I can underwrite my own premiums, I can mm-hmm. hedge one of my biggest cost inflationary yeah. risks.
0: Yeah, insurance is
2: good. So there's another one. Um, what else? Large manufacturing companies. Yes. Yeah. That happens to be another
0: one. Yeah, it does.
2: Gun stores. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely gun
0: stores. That's another one. That is another one, yes. They usually have large collection
2: of guns. Sports teams. Sports teams, yes. Those also come into the fray. They do, yes. What else? A lot of these guys invest in private equity funds. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but not so- ones that, that invest. Well, no. They do
0: actually. Yeah, they, Best do. Ones. I, yeah, they I, do. I was going to say they they're, they're smart enough not to do that, but I, I guess they they know the business. They know the operators. Mm-hmm. I, I bet those private equity funds and trucking outperform ten uh, x to the to the guys who are running franchise restaurants who decide to buy a trucking company. I would totally agree with that. Yeah, I, I would too. But so that's the end of the discussion for for trucking. We have to we end it there. We're running out of time for okay. for all our segments. We I, I could sit here and talk talk about. Trucking and M&A for another
2: two hours. Right? Yeah, no, but, clearly.
0: Yeah, we'll 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 pick it up on another episode at some point.
2: Yeah, sounds good. Thanks for having me on, guys. Yeah, you brother, bet. Thanks for coming. You bet.
0: Well, you you,
1: you can hang out if you yeah. want. I mean, we just got a couple yeah, more. Yeah. Do you we, want to run we're, through? We're just uh, we're talk about the drug. Yeah, no. We we're just I gonna talk it. drug and alcohol clearinghouse. Uh, you know, it started January sixth. Uh, we've been here for seven seven weeks now. It's been implemented. Over eight thousand positive tests in the uh, in the bank so far on six hundred and fifty thousand registrants. And that's only ten percent. Yeah, right. The the one of the guy, what's his name? Um, the driver, the CEO for driver recruiter, driver reach, believes that ninety percent of new drivers applying for jobs have yet to register. So that's now a very small this subset. This is all C D L. with all C D L. Yeah. you have a if you have a C D L, you you're supposed to eventually. Yeah. Have to register for this. So Dooner
0: does some math on this, but
1: you're an engineer. So
0: if 90% of the drivers haven't registered yet, and we're 10% already have, let's say in two months, 8,000 infractions or or, or, or um, positive tests. Positive, positive yep. tests. What, what if you extrapolate that number? What do you get get to? Are you going to pull out your your iPhone calculator? Yeah, I was going to say, what are there? 3.5 okay. million drivers. Uh, yeah, about 3.5 million drivers. Right. I think this is all Class 8 CDL. I think that so, That's one of the things I, I need to confirm. This is the um, way I would
2: go about this. But, but you have
0: random drug testing that, that last year was 25% of drivers. Now it's
2: 50% of drivers. Correct. So you're going
0: to have the, an acceleration. So
2: you have like 3.15 who haven't been tested yet, and you're saying what's, what's the— 8,000 so far in Eight. two months.
0: So I mean, is that really over four hundred k? If I do it in my head, it comes out to a a number that really can't be right.
1: Oh no! I, th- I, well, I mean, Dooner when I just like on the back of our back end envelope uh, during Freightwave's radio said, uh, let's say it's eight thousand in the first two months. Uh, if 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 it's only so, so, so let's uh, say hundred thousand. All ah. of it's going to depend on if if the rate of failure. Stays the same to yeah. the first 10%, which it likely will not. I think it's actually going to fall over time as more drivers see their buddies get positive tested or they see news about it. I think they'll eventually be smarter about using or won't use it all, hopefully. Uh, so I think, the, I think the amount, the percentage of failed tests will fall over time.
0: Because this run rate's like 100,000.
1: Yeah, it's, it's like 80, 80 to 100,000.
0: Or nine times. You know, I mean, that's, that's almost a million drivers. So I mean, it can be right.
3: Now,
2: your hypothesis on why the failed test rate will drop. If that's true, it would also positively correlate to drivers exiting the industry. Yeah. Yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yes. Uh, so whether or not they fail a test based on your hypothesis wouldn't matter because either way they're leaving, which, you know, if we're trying to track capacity like or supply. True. Yeah. yeah.
0: Are you going to leave before you, you test positive? Right. Like, we don't
2: care if you test positive or not. We're just trying to track trucks on the road rolling mm-hmm. from, like, a revenue perspective.
1: So, yeah, I guess that's the decision for a driver. Is it going to be, am I going to get out of this industry before I fail a test or am I going to get clean and and not fail the test? Because if you fail
0: a test and you try to get another job somewhere and they, you know, basically the new employer has to check that database. Yeah. Then they can't hire someone who has failed yeah. a test because if there's something that happens, really, verdicts, yeah, eh,
2: really, the know. question to ask is: Is this initial sample representative of the whole sample? Correct. That's the True. question to really True. try to figure out. And I have no idea. Yeah, I mean, ten sec- percent. I, I, exactly. I don't either. Is it enterprise fleets or owner operator self selecting?
0: Uh, it's it's a combination of all of those. So I, I I don't have the breakdown,
2: but I think we're going to do research. That'd be the way to think about it, it, right? Because if it's if it's enterprise fleets, they could either be testing the guys they know are going to fail or the opposite, mm-hmm. depending on what they're trying to accomplish.
0: Well, it's, it's random random testing. Right? Okay. So so basically, a third party is going to do the random random testing. It's going to be at arm's length. Yep. But if if the the enterprise fleets are trying to hire. Um, hire drivers, and they're on the in the drug clearinghouse database. They can't hire them.
1: I just want to know how, how honorable the uh, the third party is going to be. Is this going to be like the NCAA or the NFL no, testing players? And he's like, yeah, we test these guys. Well, we know these guys will pass, or we know these guys will fail. No, like the same way that right. you depending on what your they don't what you goals have any,
0: are. That they don't have any, any control over who gets tested and, and who's not. I think that would be a huge red red flag. Yeah. But, but it's, 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 it's something curious. I, I think we're gonna. I, I was gonna wait until the the end of the first quarter and take the numbers and and, and do that. But I think I think this is a big enough uh, story to to actually start at the end of February. Take the first two months, and and then we can revisit it maybe in, on the six month mark. But I, I think we need to get yeah, close this right. out. Yeah, definitely.
1: Well, cool. All right. Yep. Uh, drug, drug and alcohol clearinghouse. That, that's it. We're going to move on to the DHL supply chain pricing power index. This is, again, our uh, kind of our own measure of pricing power between carriers and shippers. Uh, throughout the entire U.S., we synthesize a lot of freight waves indices to, to come up with this, as well as, well as some economic data. Uh, zero would be full power to the shippers, 100 full power to the carriers, 50 being a balanced market. Right now, we fell another five points to 20. So almost full power to the shippers. Yeah, you know, you
0: you we're sitting here in February. The volumes over 2019 are flat. They're they're under one percent growth. Uh, capacity, you know, the outbound tender rejection rates are back down to the mid fives. Same thing we saw in 2019. So with that, I don't know. Uh, it's basically a shippers market right now.
1: Yeah, the next few months are going to be really interesting for me because uh, one, this looming coronavirus, we don't know what the impact are going to be to the U.S. supply chains. It seems like things are getting worse and worse every day. The CDC came out today and said expect uh, you know a, a community wide breakout of the, yeah. of the coronavirus. And if you throughout sit the in US.
0: the corner of our, you know, if you sit in our corner on the freight waves floor you are prepared for the worst case scenario because that's what everyone talks about is the worst case scenario over and over and over again all day
1: long. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, there's just so much going on that, that in the, when this drug clearing house coming in, you have insurance rates to the roof, you got company failures up. And at the same time, you may have this massive, uh, influx of volumes off both coasts yep. here in May or April. I mean, it, it's going to be May, April and June. It's going to be really fun. Uh, I think it's going to be
0: a fun, volatile market to to, to watch. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. because I'm
1: I'm so sick of this broken record every every week. I'm writing this PPI. It's like, oh, volumes are flat, capacities <laughs> I know, same. right? Rates are down every week.
3: I know. same thing over and over.
1: So yeah, I'm ready for some volatility. But, but, you know, we
0: know how <laughs> just to say volumes are flat. Be careful what uh, you wish for. Yeah, I, I, uh, I, I know. Well,
1: here yeah. I was saying the same thing about the the stock market, and then here you know, I'm down ten percent in two days. Yeah, I know, Earth. right? Yeah, <laughs> uh, but we know how to say flat. The market is flat. Yeah,
0: about twenty. different oh, I can ways write a now. diction.
1: I write a dictionary on how to write. Volumes <laughs> are flat. <laughs> uh, okay. Last segment, we got the long shorts. Uh, you, you just, you were just introduced to Robinhood. Yeah. What was it? Two weeks ago. So, yeah. uh, you may not know, you may not be able to speak to this one, but we'll ask you anyway. So, Robinhood, the the free uh, stock trading platform that's just blown up all, all over the place. They're, they're still a private company. There's a long kind of uh, look out to an IPO either this year or next year. People are very excited for it. But E-Trade was just purchased uh, for $13 billion, and we have a lot of data on them. So we get a little bit of comparison here. Here's the rundown. So uh, Robinhood has 10, 000, 10 million users. Excuse me, that's twice that of E-Trade. But Robinhood makes much less per user and has far fewer assets under management. Again, most of the guys on Robinhood are like us boys upstairs. We got a few hundred bucks in there. We trade every once in a while. We don't do much. Uh, and they, they've had a difficulty kind of keeping people on the platform, get stickiness because of everything so free and, and yada, yada. But uh, something they're going to introduce very soon is, is a social, a social feature. So imagine—I uh, don't know if you know about Wall Street bets on Twitter or on uh, on Reddit or StockTwits or any of mm-hmm. these different uh, social platforms where people share stock ideas. They're going to try to integrate that into Robinhood and create their own to create kind of more of a social environment behind behind uh, the Robinhood trading. Long or short that idea?
2: Um, I would say long. I mean, I think there's a large propensity amongst individuals to have more leverage to the financial markets. I think Robinhood's providing that from what you guys have told me through really low margin, which is highly risky. And I'm not necessarily a promoter (laughs) of it, but I believe there's a market for it. Yeah, And if you combine that with a social play, I think it helps more deeply penetrate a lot of different generations. And even if that only serves to act as free marketing, I think that's pretty impactful. And furthermore, the appetite of capital financial markets to invest in high revenue growth, high risk assets, you know, with no capital intensity is massive right now. So you put all that together, I'd say I'm long.
0: You know, I, I would be long. I, I, I am long the idea uh, okay. of community, right? Because basically it's the same thing. You get a bunch of gamblers in a room, it's, it's very entertaining. Um I I'm sure on using the community because I hear enough about stocks and stock picks on a daily basis to uh to 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 buy bonds? to buy, bonds. I, yeah, to buy <laughs> bonds,
2: right? <laughs> to,
0: to, to, to get out of the market and just buy gold or something. Golden guns. <laughs> Golden <and> guns. Yes, <laughs> definitely. But uh yeah, I hear enough I have I hear enough stock recommendations on a, on a daily basis to uh to do me for a lifetime, I think. So I'm not going to be an active part of that community, but I think it's a really good idea.
1: Yeah, you, you wonder why I, why I borrow your headphones every day. It's, I know, right? it's not <laughs> to listen to music. It's to drown out <laughs> the boys up there. Uh, I'm long as well. I think uh, I'm, I'm long the idea of this. I'm not long myself listening to anybody on there because I, I spend enough time, even if it's 10 minutes a week on Wall Street Bets, I see those idiots make $40,000 and then lose it in 10 minutes. So I, don't, I won't be listening to anybody there, but I think it is interesting and I like it for Robin Hood moving forward. Because I like Robin. If you are into the YOLO culture, it yes. is, is great for you. Yes, great for you. Let's, let's YOLO, explain that by the way. Yeah, yeah that you fine. only live once. It's the type of next day calls, you know, out of the money calls that are never going to hit. But you do it, you know, 150 times, you might hit one. And, and you, you do make it on money. margin, right? Exactly. You use That's margin to do it. it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, Robin Hood's a scary thing, but it is it is fun. Uh, okay, the next one is actually a story we got uh, that you guys talked about. You and Zach talked about on. Uh, the freight update and that's the e-Cascadia this new electric electric truck that we spoke to a driver in California that was running drayage uh, i can't remember what from what port but he was right he was driving like 100 100 miles a day and he was singing high praise for the e-Cascadia he was saying that uh, there's basically no noise to it there's no shaking uh doesn't really affect his body at all it's a much better driver experience and he he says he does not miss the uh, the, the smell of diesel or anything that goes in to his diesel truck <coughs> What do you think about this price? You, yeah, yeah, no, I, I'm
0: long this. I'm, I'm very long this. Clarissa Hawes, uh, one of our writers, wrote the story. You can find it on Freewaves.com, and and basically, there's a couple things. You know, it's all electric, and basically, the acceleration uh, keeps up with traffic in the stop and go because you know, uh, you know, trucks getting from from stop to go takes forever. I'm, I'm one that cuts right. I, yeah, in front cut, of cut, cuts, me. cuts right. Yeah, I, you. I am too actually but they can keep up traffic i think all i think that's going to be the first iteration of electric trucks or local you know 100 mile radius one charge per day and i i think um i i think it's 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 i'm very bullish on it
2: i think it's an interesting play um i think the electric angle is one that will continue to grow over time, the the real question is charging stations. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I think if you are doing it, I, th- I think starting with drayage makes a lot mm-hmm. of sense because it's you know local ish moves if you want to call yeah. it that. And so, if you can keep it in a radius,
0: I think it's an eight hour charge. So if you can keep it in that radius, doing an eight hour charge every day. Uh, I, I think you can build enough uh, build enough scale to it to yeah. to you know to, to keep it going. Maybe you get charging stations in the future. Maybe it, it leaks over into over the road, mm-hmm. they'll probably be in, in in years, but that's a great first place to start is that those local moves. Yeah, I, th- I think Trey makes a lot
1: of sense. Yeah, I echo both. I echo what you guys are saying. I th- my biggest takeaway was... I would fall out of my chair with... if you went short. Ah, uh, yeah, I mean... I'm not, in I'm the not, electric I'm not... vehicle, I would, yeah. would fall out my chair, the, uh... and I don't even have room to fall yeah, out of it. Yeah, if you fell, you might you might go through the glass. I, I might, yes. Uh, yeah, I mean, I like the driver experience, to hear this driver, that he's loving it. You hear the same thing from people that drive electric cars, that drive mm-hmm. Teslas, that they, they love the, the experience of it being fast and quiet and, and no shake. So to hear that it's happening on a, on a big rig scale, that's good. I'm, uh, I'm excited for the future of good. electric trucks. I am, too. I, I am, too. Well, that, that
0: wraps it up for this episode. It's been great. Great MA discussions on, on both freight brokerages or four PLs or three PLs. Whatever you want to call it. Whatever you call it. And then your traditional trucking and, and drug clearing house and electric vehicles. Thank you very much, JT, yeah, for joining you. us. Thanks and uh, please come on again soon. And again that wraps it up. And I guess we're out. Should I do the music again? <laughs> I never know with the new intro.